My name is Matthew Libatique, ASC, and you are listening to the Cinematography Podcast, the one and only. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben, how's it going? Good evening, Ilya. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing just fine just just fine and dandy. <laughs> don't uh, you lie to me <laughs> you know uh, i'm excited for today's episode because it's maddie libatique part two this is the second part of the two-part interview with matthew libatique and uh it's really great i'm really glad that here it is finally we're getting to it and can i say that if it were up to me uh we'd have libatique week and it would be uh you know seven days of libatique I, I feel like he's one of those people who just he he has amazing stories he's really in touch with like where his creative inspirations come from and and why he does what he does and uh he's one of those people i hang on every word so it was so exciting to get to talk to him i know i i kind of waxed his car on the last time around but <laughs> he, totally everything uh, about Medley Batik he's he's uh he's one of the greats and i feel like we're only just beginning to see what he's capable of cuz he just does every time he he does a new thing it just blows my mind uh, okay, well, you know, we kind of have a, a breaking news story here for our close focus. You know, if you can imagine the, uh, was it the teletype wire sound in the background? Exactly. Only people of a certain yeah. generation will. Maybe Ben Katz can throw in some, uh, or like when I was a kid, it was like, uh, it was like a typewriter sound. Typewriter like a sound. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> if Ben Katz doesn't have that, you can just have my, my poor impersonations uh, roll there. Yes. So, so yeah, breaking news, breaking news. And Sound Breaking, terrible, sad, horrible, horrible news. And I know that this is a little L.A. centric, but I do believe it, it impacts more than just California, but it's Pacific theaters and Arclight cinemas, which which, you are, know, for, for those outside of Los Angeles or outside of a place where there is an Arclight is sort of like the preeminent top dog movie palace it is like you know yeah. the super premium experience you pay a little bit extra but you're going to get a great seat you're not going to have more than three commercials you're going to have a, a you know a personal there are no commercials no commercials at the arc light sorry sorry zero not, not more than three zero tra- commercials. well there that's not true oh. that's not true there's no commercials for non-movies but you only get a maximum yeah. of three trailers you don't get like oh yeah 30 minutes of trailers and 10 minutes of commercials no they don't do any of that you get three trailers you get the movie boom that's it also, and if you did live in L.A., firstly, Arclight completely renovated the historic Cinerama Dome, they which did. is one of the most beautiful movie theaters in the world. If, you've, if you're unfamiliar with the Cinerama Dome, look it up. You've probably seen it in stuff. It's a, it's a giant geodesic dome that's a beautiful movie theater. When I first moved to L.A. in 1999, the Cinerama Dome was kind of run down. The picture and sound quality were still good, but like the seats were kind of tired and the curtains and stuff were kind of old and and gross. And I distinctly remember going to see a friend of mine uh, invited me to see Ben-Hur, a movie I'd never seen before. And it's so long that I think I might still be watching it right now. And I, unbeknownst to me, that was the last show at the Cinerama Dome before they closed down to renovate it and turn it into the Arclight. 
and the ArcLight became uh, the ArcLight Hollywood became the destination for movie premieres and Q and A's with big name directors. Our our friend of the show Janelle Riley and one of my best friends, she runs Q and A's with humongous directors, actors, writers, DPs sometimes, sometimes sound designers, and they would often do those at the ArcLight Hollywood. There's an ArcLight not too far from me and called the ArcLight Sherman Oaks. And, uh, you know, they, they have a bunch of them all over California. But a friend of mine in Boston said that they just opened up an ArcLight in Boston right before COVID hit. And he was uh, Scott Schmidt. And he was like, what's going to happen to it? And I'm like, I'm presuming it's gone. Like all the other ArcLight theaters, they're they're just gone. The, the entire chain. And, you know, this has got ramifications for people outside of Los Angeles, of course, as well. Some states have already lifted restrictions and things are open and people are back at it. But movie theaters in a lot of places are are not that way and your local movie theater might be having a really hard time so uh, perhaps when it is time to reopen uh, it wouldn't be a bad place to to spend some money you know interesting the vidiot's chain well it's not a chain the vidiot's video store has moved across los angeles to a new location and they're opening a theater as part of this video store as part of like this overall experience that they're going to do it was supposed to open last year but you know covid happened and it still hasn't opened the whole reason they exist, though, right now is because a wealthy benefactor basically got involved and saved them from from ruin. Mm. I don't know if that can happen with the Pacific Theater chain and the Arclight. Maybe maybe one I mean, of the locations. A, it's an enormous theater chain. It's, you know, yeah. dozens, if not hundreds of theaters. For someone to step in to say like, oh, well, I'm going to just make this my pet cause. That's a major to do. So I don't know. I hope you guys enjoyed going to the theater. I don't know what the future holds, but it may be a lot harder to do it uh, coming up here in the near, near future. Well, uh, my hope is that I'm pretty sure the Cinerama Dome is a historical landmark. I don't think that it's going to get demolished or turned into a swap meet or something. <laughs> Just I think, you wait. <laughs> God, I hope not. Uh, <laughs> I, I happened downtown, all those other theaters. I'm hoping that somebody keeps it alive as a movie theater. I almost think the Cinerama Dome would be better like the new Beverly Cinema where they like, you know, it, they show revivals and old stuff. And they sometimes did that. I saw 2001 A Space Odyssey there. I saw Citizen Kane there. They would show older movies at the Cinerama Dome and, and, and it was an amazing place to, to see those movies. As for all the other ones, you know, like I, I know that the Arclight Sherman Oaks, before it was an Arclight, it was actually a Pacific Theaters and it was just a regular old, you know, nor- normal movie theater. And my guess is probably a lot of those spaces, if the movie business ticks up, which it, uh, based on the Godzilla versus Kong numbers, to me, it sounds like the theatrical business is still alive. There's still people, people still want to go see movies in theaters. And I think that a lot of us have been hungering for a year to see movies in the theater. So as soon as it's really safe, I think, uh, you know, it's not going to be a fire sale, but maybe some other theaters or independent cinemas can move into some of those spaces and start doing the movie thing again. Also, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see a, a big chain like AMC or something like that maybe step into a lot of those spaces because some of them, you know, like, for instance, the Arclight Sherman Oaks, it's in an amazing area and there's nothing like it around. I will say, though, that although Arclight set a standard for premium uh, cinema experience at the time, I would argue that Alamo draft house has exceeded that and alamo is in my opinion the best place to see a movie it's just that there's only like in la there's only one alamo and it's in downtown la so for me it's a it's a big to do to get there and see a movie there it's also not the largest 
screens. I mean, and that's and that's not their business model. Their business model is like you know premium experience and food products and other things like that. Uh, yeah. The, when you go to the ArcLight, you got half a dozen screens over 500 seats. I mean, it's like you got big big rooms that's true the screens I, i've only seen a couple of things at the alamo in la i will say that i've uh like fantastic fest uh is at the alamo in austin and those screens are pretty big those are i'd say at least normal size screens the arc light did have excessively large beautiful uh screens and one thing that the arc light had that i thought was genius too was that they don't have the seats going right up to the screen there they usually had you know probably like 20 feet back for the very first row and so i, I remember going to see uh for instance pan's labyrinth i saw pan's labyrinth i was doing a story about guillermo del toro for creative screenwriting magazine i didn't know anything about pan's labyrinth and i showed up like 15 minutes before the screening and the place was packed it was a film festival that it was uh, playing at the movie hadn't come sat out in the yet front row. the only <laughs> the only seat left was front row center and that movie blew my mind you know it's that that movie is pure power of cinema it's such a great movie and ordinarily if you were sitting front row center that would be uh, you'd be cross-eyed by the time you walked out of there but the arc light was designed with the idea that every seat should be a pretty good seat yeah, and they pulled it off. So we're going to mourn the loss of Pacific slash ArcLight. We, we don't know what's really going to, to happen. You know, it's uh, we'll wait and see. It was just really like, you know, breaking news just uh, this evening. So uh, yeah, hopefully yeah. right before we hopped on here. So yeah. there's a Hollywood reporter and a variety article about it. And that's all I was able to find so far. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep you posted. We'll let you know what, what happens. But uh, let's get to the interview. Let's get to uh, let's do it. Let's get to part two with Maddie Libatique. Here he is. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Awesome. So, well, we had left off talking about Tigerland. And I think by the time Tigerland came out, you were already sort of, uh, there are certain cinematographers, I'll go see a movie, no, no matter whether I'm interested in the movie, no matter whether what I think of the director or the cast or whatever, I'll go see their work. And I remember seeking out Tigerland because uh, you shot it. And I, you know, I was obviously very familiar with Joel Schumacher's work and was a huge fan of some of it, not as much of a fan of some others. But when I saw that you were working with him, I was like, I want to know what alchemy comes out of that and also like i'd never heard of colin farrell's first movie i ever saw him in uh can you talk about like how you went about connecting to him because i think of him at that point he'd been making movies since like 1972 you know he's a pretty established filmmaker and you were definitely a cinematographer on the rise but he was probably one of the first a list top of the line very established directors to to bring you on board how did it happen you know, it happened through a uh, connection through, oddly, Requiem for a Dream. One of the producers, uh, Bo Flynn, an old friend of ours, was attached to Tigerland and the screenplay. And I remember it was back in the day where we had pagers. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> and um, I basically uh, got on a plane. I got a page, called it back. It was Bo saying that he had the script that he wanted me to read and um, it was Tigerland and he told me it was like this Vietnam, you know, uh, kind of a Vietnam story. I didn't, I wasn't actually that interested really, you know, mm. I, um, it didn't sound like something I wanted to do. I get off the plane and I have another page and I call back and it's Bo. He's like, I call him back and he's like, did you, did I tell you that it was Joel Schumacher directing the film? Oh, wow. And uh, I said, no, you didn't. That's uh, <laughs> that's pretty important information. <laughs> And you could imagine, I'm like, uh, I'm still in my 20s at that point, you know. Yeah. And I'm kind of blown away that uh, a person like Joel Schumacher wants to work with me on the, you know, just on the power of pie. 
And was, um, was that what got him excited about working with you? That was it. And uh, Requiem hadn't come out yet. You know, I had shot it, but it hadn't come out yet. And I shot, I think, I shot Tigerland and Josie and the Pussycats within one calendar year. Wow. I was just, uh, you know, I couldn't believe that this black and white reversal movie had enough of an impact to make people think that I could shoot Josie and the Pussycats or <laughs> uh, t- maybe Tigerland, yes, but... Um, it, it was it was quite incredible. It was a, a very special time. But the, you know, Tigerland was one of those things where Joel, the great thing about Joel is that he's open to collaboration. Uh, he was, I'm sorry. Mm. And um, he was one for bold, bold moves. You know, everything. Like he had just gotten off of a, a film, Flawless. That was really well done. Declan Quinn did a great job shooting it, and um, it was sort of a uh, a return to his pre-Batman times. Yeah, and that's kind of where I found him. You know, thirty years uh, uh, difference in age between he and I. And I remember um, getting a sixteen millimeter projector, and I, I we shot a test, and I was screening him on my wall in my apartment uh, outside of Jacksonville, and me and the gaffer <laughs> stringing it up, and uh, I invited Joel to uh hey Jola, you know, I'm I'm screening the test in my place, you know. And he just turned around and he's like, You're thirty years younger than me and then walked away. <laughs> I took that as a no. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, that movie has like I, I, I feel like again for, you know, Joel Schumacher and I think it's bringing up kind of the context of his career and how he'd made the two Batman movies, which were, uh, you know, like they were the biggest budget movies of their time, probably. And then, of course, Flawless, which was a smaller movie. But this was like for Joel Schumacher, this was like a kind of grungy down and dirty kind of movie, right? Oh, absolutely. And he loved it. It was a newcomer like Colin Farrell, who right off the bat had just screen presence. Within know? a year, he was in everything. I, I remember yeah. like I, I had never heard of him. I saw Tiger Land. And then, like, a year later, he was in, like, Minority Report, and he was in all kinds of stuff. And, you know, I, I rewatched Tigerland not four months ago, and you have to give the guy credit. His American accent was pretty damn good, mm. you know? I don't know what state the guy's from, but he pulled it off, as a, and he has a very thick Irish accent, <laughs> you know? And um, he was a new actor. He was barely, I think he might have been 22 at the time, you know? He was yeah. a very young actor. But he knew the camera and he knew, like, you know, he just, he was so aware. Like, you could see this guy was going to be a star, right? It was incredible. It, but Joel, for me, it's like, you know, take chances. He wanted to shoot in 16. He uh, referenced Leaving Las Vegas, which was yeah. a great film. Again, Declan Quinn. And they were, you know, he said, let's shoot Super 16. I opted to shoot regular 16, and the studio was sort of up in arms, like, why shoot regular 16 when people are shooting Super 16? I mean, the, the yeah. word Super is right in the name of the format, so, you know. Yeah. My thing was, like, I want, based on conversations with Joel, is we wanted to maximize the grade, not minimize the grade. Yeah. You know, I didn't want more negative area, I want less. And I wanted to blow up to a 185 image, and um, I, I thought, okay, let's degrade as much as we possibly could. I knew that the style of shooting would be, you know, we shot the whole movie on like two zooms, an 8 to 64 and an 11 to 138, mm-hmm. you know, and I had an operator and I operated handheld all the way. And um, it was back in the time when I was extremely aggressive and I shot 72, 48, regular 16, and I pushed the two stops. And then I did some, had the stupid idea of trying to cross process stuff at the end and bleach bypass it at the same time. And I was using a very small lot lab in L.A. called Crest, and I had this amazing... Um, I remember Crest. Uh, 
Evo Stadoff was my timer, and mm-hmm. um, Evo's a great guy, a fucking advocate for cinematography, and um, you know he was super supportive, and he helped me. I, like I, I literally, I actually look back on the times of film, and I, I remember that relationship between my timer and myself, and that would be the guide on how I would expose things, and you know that, that the time's gone, <laughs> it's past now. But it was, uh, it was I, I, when I think back on Tigerland, it was really about okay, well, I'm overexposing or I'm underexposing something, and knowing that only because I've had this relationship with the timer that's just invaluable, you know. And I was just trying so many things. Was there any pushback like from the studio level or the financiers about doing stuff like, you know, cross processing or, or bleach bypass, which, you know, are risky and, you know, you can't bring the negative back if, if, if they don't like the way it looks. Was there any pushback? Well, I, you know, I'd be, I had come out of the Darren Aronofsky world, so I didn't really think about what other people thought as much as what the filmmakers thought, you know. Mm. That was kind of a philosophy I had, and it, it didn't, you know, it was too young for it to dawn on me that somebody might object to what we were doing. <laughs> but I was called, to, this is an interesting story, I was called to the studio. Somebody at the, in, in the post-production department at Fox called me in for a meeting, and they wanted to discuss why, specifically why I wanted to shoot regular 16 instead of uh, Super 16. And there was a reference, of, uh, a film reference that I, I used with Joel called, uh, a film called by, by Frederick Wiseman called Titicut Follies. Frederick is and, on our show this week. We just dropped his episode. Oh, no. He's one of my favorites. I'm a Whoa. huge uh, slobbering fanboy for, oh. uh, for, for uh, yeah, Frederick Wiseman. That was Are th- you fucking serious? I'm dead serious. It was one of the most exciting interviews I ever got to do. And he could kick all of our asses, by the Holy way. shit. That's incredible. Anyway, he's been, you know, he's like Fred Wise and Ballet was a huge mm-hmm. reference when we did Pie, Titicut Follies. We, uh, there was, you know, the scene in Requiem where we're getting the, the, um, the hose stuck up. Uh, that was Titicut Follies. For sure. And then when I thought about Tigerland, I said, uh, Joel, watch this film. And Joel watched it. It's like, I want this. And uh, regular 16 millimeter, I was so steadfast in sort of my belief that this is the way to go. I didn't want to do leaving Las Vegas or super 16 because it wanted to look more like 35. I wanted to look like 16, you know. So um, I was called into an office, you know, had this meeting, whatever, explained myself. And they're writing down Titicut Follies. I remember saying, I said, mm-hmm. well, here's one of our Reverend Titicut Follies. And I say, how do you spell that? You know, mm. and they're writing down Titicut Follies. I'm just like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> you know, a, a couple days later, I go to Joel's house and we're prepping and I'm meeting him in his uh, dope ass house in Bel Air. <laughs> and um, I tell him, it's like, Joel, uh, you should know that they brought me into the studio the other day to ask me about the look of the movie. And his head exploded. He literally called the head of the studio immediately and I'm sitting there in this room <laughs> while Joel Schumacher is like um, how dare you how dare you bring my cinematographer in to a meeting without me knowing you know, like I was like oh this is some old Hollywood shit right, here, right? <laughs> right? and I'm like 29 wow <laughs> So uh, I learned a lot from Joel on that one. And another thing I learned from him is that he would just, you know, we'd work out a scene, we'd rehearse it, and then he would be like, you know what, this dialogue is just bullshit. And you just cross it out, take the page out, and throw it out of a script. I'd never seen that before. And um, yeah. Joel was, um, I, I can't say enough about him. He gets he gets disparaged so much about some of the films he's done, but um, 
as a person and as a filmmaker, uh, I have the utmost respect for him. And God rest his soul, because he's a he was a special, special human being, and nobody can replace. And like nobody is going to be like again. That, well, you know, and the thing is, I I do think he gets a lot of shit for certain movies, but also like some of his movies are so are huge classics. And I I always feel like it doesn't matter who you are, if you're the Coen Brothers or whatever, you're David Fincher. Not every movie you're going to make is going to resonate in the exact same way for the exact same audience. And probably if you have a long enough filmography, you're going to have some duds. But uh, and the stuff you did with Till Schumacher, I think Tigerland was amazing. I think Phone Booth was amazing. Obviously, he made stuff like Lost Boys. Those movies are still referenced today. And most movies come, they hit the screens and they go away and people don't think about them. And he made movies that really stuck in the world for a long time, which I think is impressive. I agree. And, and you know, um, he suffered from a snobbery mm-hmm. in cinema that exists, you know, about like having a perfect record or art for art's sake. He wasn't a filmmaker in that sense. He was a pop cultural sponge and icon. He didn't make movies for the same reason other people made movies. So it's like he wasn't doing it for his name. It's almost like Joel was doing it to do something. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was it, it was a different thing for Joel. Like he came from a place that people didn't understand when I worked with him. He was sort of a um, not a cast off, but a byproduct of the late sixties. Woody Allen being a costume designer and the early seventies, you know. And then the mid-70s, writing Car Wash, he was a byproduct of a time into another time, into the 80s, which was completely fucking insane. Mm. And then his career lasted all the way through the 90s, into the 2000s. So say what you want about the guy. There's not one bad thing you can say to me that I'll agree with. So, I, I mean, again, I feel like we could spend, you know, hours and hours talking about individual movies, but I want to definitely jump next kind of to Spike Lee and your working relationship with Spike Lee, which I, obviously before we started the interview, I, I didn't know that Do the Right Thing was kind of a giant inspiration for you, but you worked with Spike Lee several times and uh, I would cite Inside Man as possibly my favorite Spike Lee movie. I think he's made a lot of great movies, but I love a good heist movie and, it, and it's just one of the most brilliant ones. But, uh, you know, talk about if you could just you know, working with Spike Lee, because he also is, uh, he's, he's a larger than life personality and he makes bold, bold, bold movies. It's a different ecosystem, you know, when you work with him. I mean, sometimes uh, what was amazing to me is being on set with him is that the people around us, some of the people had been there since She's Gotta Have It. Oh, wow. Or Do the Right Thing you know, or Malcolm X. So you have this history around him of people who understand him, you know, that is, uh, and people who have faith in him and believe in him as a brother, not just as a filmmaker or a boss. You know, there's a love and admiration for him that um, I don't think I've seen with anybody else. You know, it's, it's, it, it, it exists outside the regular business of making a movie. He's like the only filmmaker who has his own name for what his films are. Like, they're not films. It's a Spike Lee joint on each it's one. It's a Spike Lee joint. Nobody can dare to uh, adopt the moniker <laughs> of a joint. Yeah, it would be fun to come up with, you know, every filmmaker who gets that, like, you know, Murder of Crows kind of thing. Like, you know, Pride of Lions, you know, so it's a Spike Lee joint. But what's a Christopher Nolan movie? But, you know, anyway. I, 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 I Just huge. <laughs> a Christopher Nolan gargantuan. Yeah, exactly. I think, um, you know, working with Spike, is, is he, he never ceases to amaze me. He, he, he'll turn what you would think would be a single-camera scene into a three-camera scene, and he'll turn a three-camera scene into one shot because he just thinks a, a certain way. I have a napkin somewhere in my um, 
box of curiosities that <laughs> is a shot list that he gave me one day where it was a, literally a napkin where he, because he shows, here's the thing about Spike, and I've heard this about Steven Spielberg too. They show up first. If call time is 6.30, they're, they're there at 5.30 or 6, you know? Yeah. And Spike is the same way, and he, he shows up, and I'll show up to a set, and he'll hand me a napkin or a piece of paper with like, the shots that he wants that day. And um, he's got a youthfulness to him, and also uh, a real, like, knowledge of film history, especially American film history. You know, like, have, you remember in The Searchers, how, that yeah. you know, like, Spike Lee telling me about a shot in The Searchers is kind of insane. <laughs> or, um, you know, have you seen Frankenheimer's Seconds? Have you seen, you know, he just has a, an encyclopedia uh, mind of American cinema that is incredible. It's like, you ever see anything by Otto Preminger? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and when we did Inside Man, it was interesting. We watched a bunch of films. We watched, like, Thomas Crown Affair, the original. Mm, you know? Film, yeah. We screened them uh, at the screening room in Tribeca. And he would get prints out of the uh, Scorsese library. And we'd screen prints and, like, whoever wanted to show up. Usually it was a bunch of PAs, <laughs> office people. Crew never showed up. You know, it was me, Spike. And Spike would talk over the whole movie just like, what about that? 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 And he'd point to the screen. Things we wanted to do, things he wanted, he thought were good references for what we were doing. And I think that flavor comes out in, inside Man. It's kind of an old school heist movie in that way. And it comes from his uh, absolute knowledge of where to reference uh, certain things. You know, the guy who delivers pizzas, uh, pizzas in uh, Inside Man is the same guy who delivers pizzas in Dog Day Afternoon. Oh, really? The guy's dressed up as a cop, and he's like, he even says, I'm going to keep the change. He says the same thing in Dog Day Afternoon. Oh, my God. Spike I never, ca I've never caught that, that and I've seen both movies like 100 times. Yeah. That's, that's incredible. And Dog Day was something we watched on print, you know? Wow. So did you ever tell Spike Lee that he was one of the one of your main inspirations at the beginning? When I first met him, no, that would have been too weird. You know? Yeah. yeah. What was odd was like I had come off the fountain and I did a uh, article for The New York Times. And I said that, you know, my main inspiration was to do the right thing. And the first day on Inside Man, the very first day, my camera operator, Steve Constantino, hands me a newspaper and he shows it to me. And Spike comes up to me and he's just like, thank you. And that was just like, uh, I couldn't believe it. And, I, and he was referencing the fact that I referenced him in that article as being a hero. But we had made a film together before that, and I never really mentioned it. Because it's like, you have to watch out. You're working with a hero. You have to be a collaborator. You have to be um, present as a fellow filmmaker. You can't, you know, you're not a fanboy, you know, especially if you're a DP. <laughs> you know what I mean? You can't, you can't go in with a fanboy attitude. So um, the first time I worked with him, it was like, resisting that at all costs and trying to be as professional as possible. But I'm, I knew even the first time I met him, I, you know, we talked about the New York Knicks because we're both from New York and I were both huge fans. And I know he's a super fan. I'm like, uh, as a Knicks fan, I was like, I'm talking to the number one Knicks fan. Like that's <laughs> basically how our conversation went the first time we met. But did I tell him that do the right thing is the reason why I got into the cinema? No, that would have been completely inappropriate for the yeah, first yeah. meeting. No, no, it might be weird. But yeah, I mean, it, I'm, I'm glad that he got to know that while you were working with him, though, because he's such a, an icon. And I'm sure that a lot of people have been inspired by him o over the years. But, you know, few people get to, like, be inspired by somebody and then, like, work side by side with them like that. 
I mean, it was. I, I did a film with Ernest Dickerson called Never Die Alone, mm-hmm. and I had the same feeling, you know. He couldn't have made me feel more comfortable, Ernest, mm-hmm. you know, as a cinematographer, just being a cinematographer, working for another cinematographer. Like, he was so understanding of it, and, like, he, he understood the gravity of, like, a young guy who was inspired by him working for him. And, I, and I, because I had been through that experience, I didn't want Spike to actually feel that, you know, yeah, feel that kind of uh, fandom. Well, speaking about the Ernest Dickerson thing, I always wonder about cinematographers working for other cinematographers when they become directors. And, uh, you know, I mean, you said that uh, Ernest Dickerson was pretty cool, but uh, I always wonder if uh, it seems to me because we've talked to a number of them who've done that is it, it's like, oh, OK, pressure's off. I don't have to be thinking about, you know, every little tiny detail of the cinematography and I can focus on the performances. But I'm always wondering if they're like, uh, yeah, yeah. Could you move the camera up uh, half an inch? Can you you know, like are, are, are the, is there any degree of micromanagement at, at that level? I shouldn't say micromanagement, but very, very specific uh, direction, like trying to get you to do it the way they would do it. No, I didn't. Res- I didn't get that from Ernest. But uh, the one thing I learned from Ernest is that there's always a way. You know, like you plan and things don't work out, which is cinema, which is filmmaking yeah. in general. But Ernest had this uh, way of just sort of like walking to the left five steps, walking to the right five steps, <laughs> and then just say, you know what? I think it might work from here. And then like taking me out of my head where I was fixated on what we were trying to do and that it wasn't working out and then finding a way to work it out. If something's not given to you uh, and it's not working out, you could find a way as long as you keep your head in the game in terms of being a creative, not a, a facilitator. It was very wise what he taught me. And, and uh, I'm very appreciative of it. You know, it's it's weird to have worked with both of them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I attribute both of them to the reason why I even do it. But, yeah, um, yeah. Well, I mean, Do the Right Thing has has such an amazing, popping, bright, amazing look. I mean, it's it's not like anything. I remember seeing that movie in the theater, and I'd never seen anything like that at the time. And that's one of the things that we had um, on the show. We had Ellen Curis on once. And she was talking about working with him on Summer of Sam and some other stuff. And it must be freeing, but also like he's so experimental with what he does. Uh, There's a specific kind of signature shot that Spike Lee does in his films. And I've always kind of wanted to know why it is specifically deployed where it's deployed. And it's when someone's walking, he literally has them on like a dolly with the camera and they're dollying with them and kind of pantomiming the walk a little bit. But it doesn't it, it looks like or not. Or not. Yeah. What is it that motivates him to do that? Because, like, obviously in Inside Man, there's a million scenes where people are walking, but I can only recall one shot like that. It is a signature thing he's done forever. And I've always wondered, when I'm watching one of his movies and there's a shot like that, I always perk up like, oh, there it is. Uh, you know, it's, it's it's like my old friend. I'm waiting for it. But, uh, but I don't know what is, like, powering exactly when he's going to drop it. Like, what is that shot? I, I, there's no real name. We <laughs> call it the shot. it's like how come you know we did she hate me together and we never did it and i'm like how come i never got to do the shot how come i never got to do the shot (laughs) and uh spike i still haven't gotten to do the shot everybody got to do the shot but me on inside man we did it with uh uh, denzel when he was walking to the front of the bank he's never explained this but if you watch all his films it's a time where you can reflect on what's happened before and what's about to happen Mm mm-hmm that's, it's always come at that point. What's, what's come before and what's about to happen. And there's always a dope-ass music cue that happens <laughs> when that shot is occurring. Yeah. 
So it's uh, going back to that notion that he is not a dogma director. He's taking advantage of cinema in its ultimate form. Yeah, yeah. So, and I know I kind of wanted to go through the big swings of directors that you've worked with, but like right around, it's around the same time as uh, Inside Man was The Fountain. I think they were even maybe the same year. It was like 2006, I want to say. And The Fountain was a movie, if I'm not mistaken, that Darren Aronofsky was trying to get made for like from the beginning. Like that was like a, a dream project for him. And it had some of the most insane visuals, which if I, again, if I'm not mistaken, were shot practically using like microscopic it was some insane process that I've never seen anyone use for like the outer space stuff. Well, that was all nebula. Uh, all the all everything you see when he's traveling through space in the fountain, uh, the backgrounds are basically macro photography of uh, chemical reactions mm-hmm. and creating cloud formations. And um, it's about going into the macro to create the largest expanse possible. His writing partner, Ari Handel, is he studied neuroscience. And um, I remember on the fountain asking him what it would be like, because I was struggling with how to articulate light and modulation in a nebula, <laughs> which is like, <laughs> it sounds stupid, you know, it's like you just make the lights flicker and modulate. But it, I, you know, I don't think that way. I want to understand um you know, what can I do to make it as uh, as authentic as possible? And he said, I, I would say, is it like traveling through uh, clouds in a plane? He's like, bigger. What the fuck is that supposed to mean to me? <laughs> you know, how am I supposed to interpolate bigger? You know, and then I start to think physically. I'm like, well, that must be slower. So uh, the light rig designed and the Mac between the macro photography that I saw, which was all shot high speed on film and and the the way the light might move when he gets it when he said that when he said bigger i said okay so the movements of light need to be not visible uh within seconds but in like tens of seconds that's the kind of thing and that you know up until now i think that's still the probably the biggest challenge i've ever had is try to uh, figure out how that spaceship that sort of bubble that you know not your traditional spaceship I, and I still to this day and unless Yodorovsky did it I don't know that anybody has uh, traveled through space in a fucking bubble before <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean I feel like Darren Aronofsky like we don't have enough filmmakers like him today you know his movies are just so unique to him and they're kind of like interesting art pieces each one of them so individual and yet you've shot the majority of them and they have such a coherent kind of thematic through line Mother, uh, which which is possibly the most daring of his films. And I'm glad that someone's able to keep working like that because I feel like uh, most filmmakers, you know, if, if they get like a little taste of something, they're given, uh, you know, a Jurassic Park movie. And I wonder what movies we would have gotten from them if, if they weren't like, you know, catapulted to, you know, the, the very, very top. Or they just don't get those opportunities. Like it's hard to get those movies made, period, today. I always like to think also David Lynch was up to direct Return of the Jedi, but he turned it down to direct Dune. But can you imagine if he did? <laughs> I, I would pay so much money to watch his Return of the Jedi. <laughs> you know, in this day and age, we could actually speculate what that would have been and do it ourselves. <laughs> we, should, we should. We should totally make it. would be the deepest, deepest, deepest <laughs> deep fake ever. <laughs> we could do it. Like, we have enough people we know. Let's, let's get on that. I'm in. <laughs> Every once in a while, there'll be a chapter heading about the weather. <laughs> 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 
Yeah, I, like I want to see Luke go into the red room. I want to see. I, 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 I just feel like that. There's exactly. There, there's so. <laughs> it would be so. I want to hear Luke saying suave. <laughs> I cannot wait. I'm actually really excited to see the new Dune, but the original Dune, I, I think, actually gives us a look into that. Anyway, that has nothing to do with what we're here to talk about. Um, I want to see it because Greg's. Uh, I love Greg. He's a badass, and I, I love his quality of light. So I want to see it for that. Oh my god! No, that movie is going to be. Uh, un, it's going to be off the hook. I, the trailer just blew me away. And, I, uh, I I agree. And uh, between uh, Denny and Greg Frazier, I'm like, I'm in, man. So as we were talking about people like that not making action movies or Marvel movies, like around that time is 2008, a few years later, you made Iron Man, which I, in my opinion, kind of reinvented. Way to throw it back in my face. That movie, <laughs> though, is so unexpected and so brilliant. And you had, I believe, not worked with John Favreau at that time, had you? I had not. You know, it's funny. I met him uh, about the year uh, award season uh, at the Independent Spirit Awards. It was uh, when I won for Requiem for a Dream. And I met John Favreau. And he's a big dude. You know, he's like, he's like, you know, I voted for Tigerland, too. I thought you should have been nominated for Tigerland because it was the same year. And that would have been incredible you know, to be nominated for Tigerland and Requiem. But John's like, he looks at me. He's like, how the hell do you do handheld? You're so short. <laughs> <laughs> that was basically my interaction with John until I got called into a meeting to meet him for Iron Man 1. It's weird because I feel like Marvel works best when their expectations, when there are no expectations. So it's things like Iron Man, which was not, it wasn't Spider-Man. It wasn't already a global franchise. That movie made it a global franchise. And of course, I would also say Guardians of the Galaxy, which is a movie that I don't think they even had any expectations from that ended up being a humongous hit. But that first Iron Man, which I went to see kind of like, hey, I like Robert Downey Jr. You know, I I like John Favreau. I'm going to go check it out. And it was just like, holy crap, you could see a franchise kind of opening up. Now, it's my understanding that uh, John Favreau and that uh, used a lot of improvisation. A, was that true? If it's not true, then I'll, I'll drop it. But B, how does working within an improvisational atmosphere kind of affect your work? Well, I wouldn't call it improvisational as much as it was a fluid screenplay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's something we worked out every day. And um, to work in those circumstances, I didn't feel it. I, I didn't get frustrated by it. I'm like, okay, if you guys want to spend, you know, a couple hours in the beginning of the day rehearsing it and trying to rework the words... And we could throw these sides away and get another set of sides in, you know, another hour, then so be it. And if our, you know, whatever uh, 12-hour day turned into nine hours of shooting, then so be it. Like, as long as what we were getting, everybody was happy with. Yeah. And um, that's what it was. That was like, it was like a giant independent film, I have to say. Walking into the offices of Iron Man was like... uh, there was enormous resources because I had never done a film of that size. The biggest film I had done of that size was Inside Man, and that was $50 million. And even Spike didn't know what to do. You know, like he was just, you know, asking, asking, <laughs> and wondering why nobody's told him not that he couldn't have something. You know, a filmmaker is a filmmaker no matter how much money they have. They keep asking and they keep pushing until somebody pushes back because they don't have the resources to do it. Yeah. And on Iron Man, it was the same case. And, um, we had uh, Avi Arad was still involved, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and Kevin Feige was Avi's like secondhand man. Like Kevin Feige's a legend now. Like, yeah, that yeah. was the early days of this juggernaut. Yeah, I mean, that's the and, start um, of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which might be the most profitable film franchise ever. I, I don't have blame to, me. <laughs> I, well, I have to think that if Iron Man hadn't been what it was, there wouldn't have been a Marvel Cinematic Universe or it wouldn't have been as big as it has become. 
And it's almost made so that if you watch Iron Man and then you jump to the end and watch Avengers Endgame, whatever, part two, they're still one of a piece. Like they're still kind of referencing each other and and they're building off of the look you created, whether intentionally or unintentionally. I feel like the whole MCU kind of has the, the vibe of that first Iron Man movie. Well, I think they have the vibe of the first Iron Man because of Robert Downey Jr. Mm -hmm. Not because of me or John, Um, maybe John. Uh, but not because of me. I, I, I don't want to take credit for the things I've seen uh, that happened <laughs> afterwards in any way, shape, or form. Um, <laughs> well, it's, I always, uh, not to get into a DC versus Marvel thing, but I, I think it's interesting that Marvel chose to make this kind of airtight, perfect, everything refers to everything else. I, I say this, I'm not a superhero. But that's a stroke of genius from Kevin Feige. Exactly. And a stroke of genius from uh, everybody involved that they saw how to and it's kind of motivated from um the man who's uh you know dearly departed um stan lee yeah you know he connected the worlds in comics and he connected all the worlds in comics and these guys just followed suit and did the right thing and they created the quote-unquote universe yeah yeah. that's fucking awesome you know i mean it's it's a humongous undertaking no matter what you know, I don't love all the movies or whatever. And I think it's interesting that DC chose kind of to go to the opposite and to have like a Joker movie that has literally no continuity with the Joker movie that came out the year before. And they're just like, yeah, yeah screw it. <laughs> like, well, they're not as connected and yeah. they didn't have the vision that Marvel had. Yeah. Um, and you know what? They still make good movies. So don't get me wrong. No, I was a DC fan growing up as a kid. As a comic book kid, I love DC. And I look at Marvel now, I'm like, wow, that's smart. No, and, I love them both you know, and for different reasons. I mean, like, I don't, I'm, yeah. So let's go ahead and jump a little bit forward to A Star is Born. We're almost at, at, at present time here. So A Star is Born, you know, you're tackling, I think it's the third or fourth remake of it. Did you refer to the previous versions of that movie when you came on board? I revisited them, yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had to. And then Bradley, you know, on our first meeting, uh, Bradley and I, talked about like how much importance there would be to uh sort of revisiting the previous three you know yeah obviously there were parallels to the 70s version with streisand and christopherson because of the um, modernity of it all Mm -hmm. you know but if you look at the judy garland version there is uh there was i think our version is more akin to that one there's a there's a sort of classical structure to it although that it had a lot more music than any of them the, the yeah. Garland version. And before that, the uh, the previous version was more classical as well. And it was like, okay, well, we're on stage with a handheld camera. It makes you feel like it's the 70s version, Streisand, Christopherson. But, I you know, I watched that film. And it was like, it's one of those films I remember from childhood because I remember watching it at a drive-in with my parents. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, being in the back of a fucking pickup truck with a camper <laughs> shell, like watching A Star is Born in New Jersey, you know? We weren't beholden to any of them as much as we were sort of, uh, we, we wanted to pay homage. Like the scene where he said, uh, he says that uh, line, I just want to take another look at you. Mm-hmm. Like there was a struggle there, whether or not we were, you know, he was going to do that. And, and he just decided to do it. And I think it resonates. And it's a nice shout out to the history in, uh, of, the, of the franchise, or not franchise, but the yeah. lineage of, those, of the films, right? It's also like, how does Jack die in comparison to the, you know, uh, James Mason character or the Chris Christopherson character? Is it going to be a motorcycle a crash or is it going to be, what is it going to be? Mm-hmm. And um, as we were making it, 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 it answered itself like he was going to commit suicide, hmm. you know? 
and then slowly but surely that, that that wasn't something that was written to the script when we started shooting it was something that evolved oh really you know well i mean i, I, I mean maybe that i don't know what the party line is <laughs> but <laughs> no, um, it's always I, interesting when you hear about these movies that are like oscar caliber films you know like gladiator where they basically had an outline and made the whole movie <laughs> You know, but and I know that that's not what you're describing here. But to me, it's interesting to hear that they, you know, because to me that seems like such an essential part of that story to not have it at the script level, but to find it while you're working. Maybe that's why it feels so essential is that it came out of the making of the movie. Were you making the movie in sequence at all, or somewhat in sequence? Nah, not really in sequence. I mean, we started on stage at Coachella. Mm-hmm. Like that's the beginning. We 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 did the. There's a scene where they do a road stop, and that was the beginning of the movie, right? Um, that was us shooting a day uh, at the beginning of the film, and um, I'll never forget. Clint Eastwood shows up, and he looks at me and he's like, "What the hell happened to your hair?" <laughs> I was like, that's the best fucking thing that's ever happened to me in my career. Like, you know, Clint Eastwood just like looking at my hair. He's like, what the fuck's wrong with you? Um, but I, you know, we started there, but then soon after that, we're in Palm Desert. We're shooting Coachella and we're shooting all the performances. So we hit the ground running in performance. And then, um, you know, as time went on, the, one of the original conceits was that he was going to kill, he was going to die in a motorcycle accident, like in. The 70s version was Christopherson, but it just started to gestate and, and the tone and um, performances and how their relationship was going and the level of alcoholism and the level, you know, those things started to evolve. And, and um, the great thing about being a part of a collaboration where you, you trust each other, like uh, not just me and a director, but the whole crew being able to pivot is that... That's not going to be a problem if you want to change something in the story. We could do it, you know, from production design to cinematography to producing to you know just the general crew. Like we could pivot and we can make it happen. And and it evolved into the what you see in the movie is uh, him hanging himself in the garage. You know, but uh, like if you knew that when you were starting, and this is a crazy question, uh, so I, I I fundamentally you might just shoot me down and say I'm full of shit. But if you knew from the beginning that he was going to kill himself, would you have shot the scenes leading up to it differently than if you thought he was going to die in a motorcycle accident? In retrospect, no. I, I don't. I don't think you want anybody to know, and you want you don't want to telegraph. I, I think the power of the um, film, like it's not like we didn't know that, that was going to happen after week one. Like week one, we knew oh, okay. that was going to be a change. You know, yeah. it wasn't like we we improvised it on the day we were supposed to shoot a motorcycle. Like <laughs> hey but, everybody! Um, but at the at the same time, it's like you know you you. It's a surprise. It's like, what's yeah. this character going through? That's a, that's a story you're telling. Anyway, I was going to say about Bradley, like, you know, the one thing he has the ability of is, like, uh, as a director, which is why I, I like I started, like, he is a real director, is that his ability to explain what the scene is in his imagination. And that's one thing actors have over directors sometimes is a way to articulate verbally what is happening. Because, like, um, and Bradley has that, like, he could say he could tell you that the camera starts high and you see the top of his head and it booms down or it starts really low and you see his boots come out of the truck and they follow him until they go to his hat that he puts down you know all that like when you look at that scene where he um commits suicide that's Brad, that's out of Bradley's imagination explained to us like a week and a half before we shot it so he had, and he also has this ability that I've never seen before which is he could see the camera out of his peripheral vision 
and feel comfortable about where it was at a scene so he didn't have to watch playback. Oh, interesting. That's cool. I think that there's an interesting thing happening these days uh, where, to me, the cliche used to be actors who become directors. Not all, but a lot of them weren't especially visual. And I think that, uh, you know, like that movie is is amazingly visual, you know, in it, in its construction and the way the sequences and stuff kind of play off of each other. Um, you know, always interested if that has to do with you or if that has to do with him or, you know, it's usually the alchemy of the two of you together. But, you know, I feel like him or Jordan Peele, there's like so many actors who've turned director recently, you know, in the last 10 years who I think are almost primarily visual, like their, their visual uh, is amazing. And I love what you're saying about uh, his deconstruction of a scene, because that's what actors, that's all they do. They, they deconstruct a scene so that they understand emotionally it has to go from here to here to here. So it's an extra step in your brain to go from that to what does that look like? But um, I, I think even more importantly, it's like he knows what's more impactful in terms of performance. Like sometimes directors you know, uh, will rely editorially on how to construct the tone of a scene based on uh, multiple takes of one actor or multiple actors. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, when you deal with an actor as a director, they know when they want a scene to carry out from this point to this point from a performance yeah. standpoint, that's fucking interesting. <laughs> you know what I mean? They, they, so you get a commitment from them, which is uh, unbelievable. Like, they know when they don't want to cut away from a person. They won't work away from a scene until they get the performance from the beginning to the end of how long they want that performance to last. Mm. And I thought that was really interesting. But does that also mean like you're you end up doing less coverage because you're not covering your ass? They know what they want. We did less coverage in a Star's Born than you would normally do. I think if it was mm-hmm. a regular director, we would have done more. Interesting. Sure. So you had reminded me, and it was one of the ones that I meant to talk about, uh, and I think it's important to talk about is Straight Out of Compton, which to me tells love that movie. Tells it, it tells a story that I can't. I couldn't believe no one had told it before. How important was NWA to you uh, growing up? I mean, uh, as soon as I got out of high school, I was working at record stores, you know. Well, I heard the NWA record around the same time I heard Yo Bum Rush's show from Public Enemy. Mm-hmm. And then I heard uh, Fear of a Black Planet. And and I was just, like, blown away. It was a revolution. So when uh, I was in the New York hotel room and I, was, I had the TV on, it was uh, Oprah. And she had Ice Cube on. And she said, that what's going on with this NWA movie? And I just turned around. I'm like, what? What NWA movie? <laughs> so I literally called my agent right there. I'm watching Oprah and I'm like, I call him. I was like, is there an NWA movie? And he's like, yeah, there's an NWA movie. F. Gary Gray's doing it and it's going to go to Atlanta and this, that, and the other. I was like, I want a meeting. It's like, get me in, get me, I get me in the room. I want to, I want to talk, you know, and I've never, ever done that. I never chased the film before. So I chased this one and I end up on Oscar day. I forget what year it was, obviously the year before we shot the film. I'm sitting in his office, you know, it's Oscar day. I'm like sneaking into Hollywood. He's at Sunset Gower and we're eating. He's got a wall of uh, snapshots from the time. And each snapshot is indicative of the tone of the scene that in the film uh, based on the script. And I was like, I'm in, man. Like, yeah, I, I just wanted to do it. And at the time, they were hemming and hawing about making it in Atlanta versus L.A. And I was like, how could you possibly make this movie in Atlanta 
I know that that seemed when you said that before. I'm like, did I make that in Atlanta? I mean, like, <laughs> I've been to Atlanta. That'd be yeah. a stretch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, would be, it would be a little complicated. That'd be complicated. But um, you know, long story short, we ended up shooting it here. And I, you know, and it, it just it was. Uh, I remember reading the script. and I'm like, this is a superhero movie. You know, it's yeah, not. Kind of it's definitely an origin story for sure. <laughs> it's an origin story. It's a superhero movie. It's not a. Uh, it's not cash. It's not your uh, typical biopic. First of all, it's about a collection of guys, and they uh, they kind of all have equal value. At least three of them had equal value. Yeah. And um, so it, it, it ceases to be, um, you know, a story about James Brown. You know? Yeah. It's literally the makings of uh, a superhero called Ice Cube, a superhero called Dr. Drain, a superhero called Easy. Right? Mm-hmm. And then there's MC Ren and, um, and Yellow. You know, it's it's sort of like do the right thing. Working with Spike and having do the right thing be an inspiration to me. It, making straight the company was the same. It had the same importance to me because it, it came from my upbringing in popular culture. Yeah, it's a generation defining uh, uh, album and and band. You know, yeah. I mean, it'd be like making a movie about the making of Sgt. Pepper's or something. You know, it's 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 right. so impactful in its own time. Yeah. So having seen the movie, I think I know the answer to this, but I'm just curious what your point of view is. Like when you're when you're doing something as a period piece like that, are you trying to make it look like it really looked at the time? Or are you trying to make it feel like it really felt at the time? Both. Mm-hmm. Both. I mean, I you know, we you know, some of the stage work uh, we did, I, I, we re- worked really hard not to get too uh, into modern uh, lighting. You know, obviously, we were we're in the midst actually of an LED revolution. It's already taken place and it's already superseded everything we've done and what we do. But when you do a stage show that's meant to be in the '80s, you got to really resist having to use LED, which we did. But uh, we used them in the casings of a a light, like a, a parkan or mm-hmm. you know something that would be representational. So um, I literally thought to myself, it's like when we were designing the stage lighting for Shadowcom, it's like what would Henry Rollins do? <laughs> you know, like what as simple as that. Like, okay, it was like if 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 Rollins would do this, I'll do ten percent more, fifteen percent more than what Rollins would do. That's because that's what this <laughs> band always meant to me. You know, uh, straight out of Compton. I mean, uh, NWA was like the the hood version of Henry Rollins. You know, that's interesting. Oh yeah, they 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 definitely are. Yeah, I mean, there's they they are as punk as punk gets, really. And I always think it's interesting too, and and I think the movie kind of brings this out is that like mov- music like that because I'm I'm a few years younger than you, but like my parents hated all all the rap music that was coming out and were afraid of of you know the messages in it, and I feel like that's almost the sign of the perfect transgressive musicianship is when you create that because those people aren't like you know I, they're they're all just normal guys. But they, you know, but they figured out a way to be so uh, provocative with their music that people were actually afraid of them. I mean, you know, imagine being afraid of, I don't know, Yo-Yo Ma or something. You know, it's like you're not you're not going to. But only if his fucking staff was a sword. Um, <laughs> the truth is Yo-Yo Ma would fuck all of us up. Anyway, I think it's interesting because it humanized them in a way because, you know, like I was I, me personally growing up in Florida, you know, like that was that was music that was like kind of taboo so of course i was drawn to it but taboo for all the reasons you'd think it would be taboo in florida as well and south central seemed like you know a bazillion light years away like like another universe and it, it was amazing seeing it kind of brought to life were you using any kind of vintagey lenses or any anything to kind of evoke the way movies felt back then or the way that their music videos felt or anything like that 
You know, I uh, it was the second movie I shot with the Red Dragons, and mm-hmm. um, back during the Iron Man days, we tested the red, the first uh, version of it, and I, I hated how uh, it didn't have the tonality to cover within the same scene a darker yeah. skin tone and a lighter skin tone. And then I shot, um, I, I, I remember going to a demo at the ASC about the dragon, and I could see, like, I was like, wow, this tonality is completely different. So I ended up testing it and shooting it uh, on a, in Brazil on a film uh, about Pele. Mm-hmm. And I, I fell in love with how they captured African-American tonality, you know, and the differences between cool skin tones and warm skin tones. So I I just, you know, because I was getting used to the camera, I ended up using it on uh, Compton specifically because I, I really loved the how uh, it, it sort of uh, rendered tonality that way. But I did want to dirty it up. You know, I really, uh, you know, I was I was dead set on like I, I use cow aspherical's primarily uh, on the film and then uh, Zeiss Super Speeds. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a scene with, I believe, it was Ice Cube's first scene at, um, at when he's performed for the first time and uh, there's a flare there that I'm very uh, particularly proud of because I placed the light <laughs> there specifically because I wanted to get the flare there for him. And, um, you know, we used that. We also used Bethke filters, which was something out of Vantage Films that I think you guys are probably familiar with uh, after going to camera image. Uh, they had these filters that you put in front of the lens, and then I, we built this thing called the Ring of Fire that we placed on rods outside of the about maybe a foot off the map box. And then we had the we had 12 LEDs that would shine into this thing to create uh, a sort of a flare effect that would uh, that we used every time we were introducing a new character. And we used it once for EZE, we used it once for Dr. Dre, and we used it once for Ice Cube, and and that was all in. Um, in service to sort of the superhero part of it. They got the glow. Yeah, exactly right. And, and, and as a cinematographer, what you're doing is you're trying to root somebody within the world of your film, but you're also trying to accentuate the things that are important. That's awesome. Uh, Maddie, is there anything that I uh, have missed or that you wish we would talk about or a movie that... Uh... I think we should save it till part three, bro. All right. <laughs> <laughs> So before we go, though, uh, th- firstly, thank you so much for uh, giving us all this time. I, I think we might turn this into a two-parter. Before we go, uh, obviously, if people want to see your work, they should first check out The Prom on Netflix right now. But uh, do you have a, a website or a Instagram or something that you like to interact with people on? I mean, I, I have an Instagram account that uh, I'm on and off with, um, but that, that's basically all I have. I don't have Twitter anymore. You're, Too you, toxic for me. Yeah, it's pretty toxic. But I, I, um, I do. I still have my Instagram uh, at Libatique. Cool. Well, I uh, hope everyone goes to check that out. I hope everyone goes to check out the prom. And uh, again, a thousand thank yous for coming on board. Uh, you, you were one of the names that we probably floated as maybe we'll be lucky enough to to get Maddie Libatique on here one day when we started this. So it, it, it's an enormous pleasure to talk to you, and uh, and I just love your work. I appreciate it, guys. You guys are awesome. Uh, thank you so much for having me. So that was Maddie Libatique. What an amazing part two. part two. That was the second part of Maddie Libatique, our final <laughs> part of Maddie Libatique for this round. Hopefully we'll get him back when he's got another exciting movie. Uh, in the meantime, everybody go check out Prom. It's on Netflix. And now, short ends. All right, so Ben, it's time for our famed short ends. You got, you got a short end this week? Something that you're obsessing about? Uh, yes, I do, Ilya. Uh, it is a movie 
It's not a podcast. It's not an HBO documentary this time. But here, as we're kind of hot and heavy in Oscar season, I thought I would distract everybody with an awesome horror movie that I saw last week on Shudder. So if you don't have Shudder, I talk about Shudder a lot on here. I think Shudder is an amazing uh, online service or like a streaming service. But, you know, for people like me who like lots of horror movies. So it's a new movie that dropped on Shudder called The Power. And I watched the trailer and I, I can't tell you exactly why. When I watched the trailer, I was like... I don't know. And then Alicia and I, my, my wife and I were, were kind of like trying to find something to watch. And I was like, let's give this five minutes. I don't know. Uh, Alicia responded more quickly to it. But it takes place in 1974. And it's about a nun who goes to work in a hospital. And I would say that it's like it ends up being kind of part The Shining, part Jacob's Ladder. And it's very, very it's it's a very fresh kind of a movie. I'm, I'm very interested to see what this director does. Her name is Karina Faith. I haven't seen any of her other films, to my knowledge. I, I I went and looked it up. And the DP is a woman named Laura Bellingham. And it looks amazing. It's really creepy. Like, it really sets an atmosphere. And when I say The Shining, I mean, like, that's high praise for me because The Shining, you know, to me is one of the crowning achievements in horror cinema. And The Shining had that weird feeling of like you're going down a, a long hotel corridor or whatever and then seeing something you're not supposed to see in a room. And this kind of does that, but in a hospital. And basically in, in the story, this nun goes to work in this, in this hospital. Something horrible has happened there. We're not really supposed to know what it is at first. And I don't want to spoil what it turns out to have been. But She's not to talk to any of the doctors. It's like early to mid 70s, kind of like very patriarchal England. And she's supposed to work in a very subservient way. And she talks to a doctor and as punishment, she's forced to work all night, the overnight shift. And she's basically in a hospital outside of the patients and a few other people basically alone. And there are blackouts going through that area. So giant corridors go totally dark from time to time. And it is so goddamn good. I just can't recommend it enough. I watched it last weekend, and I've been thinking about it every day. Hmm. Wow. All right. That's high praise. I'll check that out. I'm interested. Do it. Do it. And and if you uh, don't feel like spending money to be a Shutter subscriber indefinitely, uh, I believe you can always get a 30-day free trial. Check it out. If you like it, stick with it. It's not it's not a terribly expensive service. But again, if you're not into horror movies, probably won't be your cup of tea. But I really thought this was uh, brilliant. And uh, and my wife pointed out when it was over and I hadn't really it hadn't really occurred to me that this was the case. It's like it's a movie where pretty much all the main characters are women. The director's a woman. The DP's a woman. Like most of the people who were behind it were women. And it has, I would say, kind of a subtly feminist message but not in a way that felt like I was being uh, preached at in any way. You know, it's just a really well-told story, and I'm excited to see what all the people involved with this do next. The movie is The Power, and the director is Karina Faith. She is English. I I think it's all uh, uh, an English production or a British production. But uh, yeah, definitely check it out if you get a chance. And let me know what you think. Tweet at me or something. Tell me if you liked it. You know, my short end this week is also actually about something that is English. Um, and this is going to be getting into the world of, uh, of business here for a second, but there is sort of one large player in particular, publicly traded company in the technology sector of uh, the motion picture industry that has um, a business model that's based around acquiring other companies. And that mm. company is called the Vitek Group. The Vitek Group, uh, based in the UK, owns 
most of the tripod manufacturers, uh, they own uh, Anton Bauer, probably the you know the largest, most prevalent ba- battery mm. company. They own a lot of different brands, including on the, the LED lighting side, they own a company called Light Panels, which was really one of the first players in LED lighting. Well, uh, today they actually acquired two more companies. Uh, one of them is sort of a, a streaming company, and there's details about that. It's called uh, Lightstream, and uh, they're involved in all kinds of things, and it was a very high-dollar acquisition. It was $36 million almost that they they acquired um, the wow. company. And they also acquired a little company, a company, well, th- this affects us uh, directly. We do a lot of business with Vitek, but also we were one of the very first dealers ever for a company called Quasar Science, and Quasar Science makes these LED light tubes, and I know that they had a, a fair Fairly hard road initially, and they were kind of. It took them a while to, to catch on, but when they did, they started doing really well. And they're a really scrappy sort of independent venture. And you know, they got acquired or announced today for six point one million dollars. And I think that's really great for them. I mean, congratulations, they were able to to, to cash out and, and make some money in the process. Uh, but it's also going to be an interesting uh, melding of the uh, the business philosophies of of the companies because very independent minded and now very corporate minded, and so. It'll It'll be interesting to me to see what happens. Um, Quasar Science, you know, interesting lights and lots of uh, capabilities for uh, RGB lighting and small lighting and inexpensive lighting, all kinds of cool stuff. And now essentially the 800 pound gorilla of the LED lighting space, you you might say, because, well, actually, probably not fair to say, because there's a bunch of other LED lighting companies that, that do really well. Big companies, of course, like, like Airy are, are involved in lighting. But the fact that Vitek, identified this company, said, that's what we want to add to our portfolio and did. It could be a really good thing actually for both businesses coming together. You know, we'll have to see what happens. But Vitek, you know, has like 1600 employees in over across 11 countries. And mm. Quasar Science has only been around a few years. And it's like 18 people. And uh, it, it, it's going to be uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens now in this in this new world and what sort of stuff that they, they work on. You know, light panels make some really cool lights. Uh, Quasar Science makes cool lights. I think that maybe we'll see all this stuff sort of merge together. And mm. I, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, do you have uh, an inside track? Like, do you talk to people who who work at Quasar Science or the people who who own Quasar Science? I'm just curious if you can find out. Like, do they become part of the Borg Collective now, or are they basically being bought out and financed, but left to do their thing in some way? Uh, well, I can tell you that there's a playbook that Vitek generally seems to follow, and the key people, the the partners, all I mean, four of the partners of Quasar Science sound like they're they're sticking around, at least according to the press release I saw. And uh, I do know the people, and I do have conversations with them, and I'm on the LED lighting tech committee for the ASC, and all the players for all the different manufacturers are are part of that same committee. So I, you know, back before COVID, we'd we'd see each other on a on a regular basis. But yeah, I. I it's hard to say what's going to happen, except, uh, you know, uh, usually the companies kind of let the, the Vitek lets the companies kind of continue to, to run and do their thing for a while. And then eventually that kind of all gets absorbed and, and brought inside of uh, the Vitek group. You know, CSLA, uh, Creative Solutions uh, division of Vitek group includes companies like Small HD and Wooden Camera and mm-hmm. Teradek. All, all of them are in a division. Light Panels is their own division. And oh, I didn't Quasar know Small Sciences HD was part of Vitek, too. They were. Yeah, there they are. They Yeah, they were. They were acquired. Um 
Wooden Camera was a fairly famous acquisition not too long ago. I think they paid out around $20 million for Wooden Camera. And uh, I know, exactly. I think that's what everybody said. And the founder of the company just exited in the last year. So uh, basically, usually what happens, people stick around for a while, and then they they move on to other stuff. Is there a master plan behind Vitek? Are they just... I think they're the Borg. I think that they're going to, you know, they're going to continue to uh, identify companies. I mean, their their growth model is to keep acquiring companies, it seems, and it's working out. You can you can buy them. They're trading, I think, at over over eleven hundred pounds a share or something like that. So, Whoa. yeah, if you if you would like to. Yeah, they're they're a, they're a mighty empire. And uh, yeah, if you uh, if you still wanted to invest, yeah, they, you, you can buy them. They also owned, God, the, the list of companies is crazy, but like O'Connor, Sackler, Manfrotto. Yeah, they, they own a lot wow. of brands. Yeah. And why keep all those brands separate at that point? I mean, they like, don't. Re- well, I mean, they, they, they established their own following. They kind of serve different markets. But now manufacturing for all those like tripod brands, they all take place in Costa Rica. So it's like Costa Rica, like they've got a factory, I'm, I'm pretty sure, or a series of factories that are building O'Connor, Sackler and Manfrotto. They're all com- coming out of there. So. Wow. That's that's very interesting. Yeah, I, I I didn't know any of that. You just blew my mind a little bit. It's kind of opaque. You know, they don't. You know, you can if you look around or if you're in the industry or you pay attention, you can see like, oh yeah, the the power and reach of you know some of the players here and the Vitek is one of the largest and does tend to acquire you know uh, companies on the regular. It seems like annually there's like annually it's like oh we're gonna increase our holdings in this space and then uh, yeah there there's usually some sort of performance based payout that that happens to the the people behind that they want. To make sure that they've acquired a company that you know continues to do well so they usually pay them some cash and then depending on how they they do they they make more money and then uh who knows we we, we don't know it's uh so we'll, the, we'll see what happens the big question is what are they going to do when what are you going to do when they come for hot rod cameras you know I, I don't think there's much of a chance of that uh we're their customer we we buy from them so it's like yeah. we, we buy their stuff and, and sell it they they don't play in our space per se they're not really looking to acquire people who sell their products and stuff like that so uh i i I seriously doubt they're gonna come knocking so Mm. we'll see about that (laughs) anyway (laughs) so ben i think that just about does it for this uh episode where can people find you please go to benrockonline.com and you can see some of my directing work you can find all my social media stuff read my blog, which I've kind of left fallow for probably five or six years, at least. I don't know, probably more. Ah, so, so they can go and look at that same blog post from six years ago. Yeah. Yeah. It hasn't <laughs> changed. I haven't, I haven't revised it, but, uh, more importantly, uh, yeah, you can, uh, you can find links to the cinematography podcast on that, on that, uh, website. So. Nice. Yeah. How about, how about <laughs> yeah. you, Ilya? Where can people find you? Well, I'm really inspired now. I think I'm going to write something for your blog just so, uh, Do it. you can be a, <laughs> my guest blogger. Uh, find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. Uh, if you come into the store, we are open again. Uh, very uh, COVID-friendly. Well, I should say COVID-friendly. COVID-unfriendly. We're very uh, social distance-friendly. Distance friendly. And uh, all the CDC. Yes, strike me down, COVID. <laughs> but uh, if you come into the shop and you mention that you listen to the podcast, someone will slap a t-shirt in your hand. That's uh, that's what we do. We want people to have Hot Rod Socially distanced. Like you use one of those nifty nabber things where you like, it's like a... Like it's makes a, you like four feet longer on, on each arm. It's a t-shirt cannon is really what we're using. You'll, uh, we're just blasting you'll, it. You'll <laughs> get in the thing that Sigourney Weaver drove around in aliens and you'll, you'll use that to hand them a t-shirt. Uh, we, we got a good system. You, you will see a surprising amount of like, uh, 
translucent plexiglass barriers and things like that. And everyone has their own station. And thankfully, it's like a 7,000 square foot building. And everyone's kind of got about 1,000 square feet to themselves. Everyone's kind of got like a, well, maybe not quite that much, but they got they got a few hundred square feet to themselves. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it myself because I haven't been there since COVID started. But you, you've got your first vaccine and I'm getting my second one next week. So probably in under a month, we can be doing this in the same room again like we used to. You haven't even seen the theater, which is also sounds fantastic. We should record an episode in there. It'll be fun. I'm happy to do it. I love that theater. I think it's a great space. I think we should move the whole podcast operation into that theater. All right. Done and done. Okay, Ben. Uh, I think that just about does it uh, for this episode. Let's thank some people. Uh, yeah, absolutely. First out of the gate, we must thank Alana Cody, our intrepid, amazing producer who tirelessly works to get us some of these amazing interviews. Uh, We have some great ones coming up. And uh, again, I can't uh, stop doing a victory lap that we got to have uh, Mighty Lee Batik on the show. Uh, Again, yes, absolutely. Uh, Yeah, let's also thank uh, Kay Zalatrachi, who's uh, not listening, but uh, but still, you know, totally deserving of our thanks for all the wonderful work he did making all the music that you heard on this podcast. And uh, lastly, we want to thank uh, birthday boy Ben Katz, who I believe it is his birthday as we are recording today. Uh, Ben Katz, who uh, makes us sound less idiotic than we are by some percentage. Happy birthday, Ben Katz. Now get back to work. (laughs) Edit, edit, edit. edit. Snip, snip, snip. (laughs) Chop, chop, chop. (laughs) All right. Well, Uh, that, that about does it. We will see you next week here at the Cinematography Podcast. Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.